This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Terry Strzok, host of Beauty Now. I'll be your weekly host on the quest to remain ageless. We get the lowdown on lipo, lasers, lifts, hormones, rejuvenation, and more from experts on everything beauty. Today, we welcome Dr. Brent Mulliken, a prominent and well-known board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon who's been featured on my favorite show, Extreme Makeover, as well as one of my favorite magazines, Vogue. always good as a patient to kind of listen and see what makes the most sense when you hear the plan of the doctor. So if there is drooping in the breast, often we, we need to do a lift. Otherwise, if we just put an implant in a droopy breast, then the nipple might be very low and the implant might be very high. Now, ru- rupture means that the outer shell of the breast implant breaks for whatever reason. Now, if there's salt water inside the implant, then the woman knows right away because the, the breast is flat, the other one's normal, so they know right away. But if it's a silicone gel breast implant, then it's harder to determine whether there's been a rupture. I think there's probably more paperwork to sign when you get a breast augmentation than there is when you buy a house. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. Forget it. The important question is, you know, is your doctor really, really reputable? That's the most important thing. Welcome, Dr. Melkin. Well, it's good to be there. Thank you so much for talking to Beauty Now today. Well, it's my pleasure. We're going to be talking about everything breast today. Great. you walk us through a consultation? Yes. Feeling kind of low about your breasts, no pun intended, but I know it's a little bit embarrassing when you come in. Walk us through it. You know, women, I think, are always a little bit self-conscious about showing their breasts to somebody that they barely know. It's kind of amazing that it even happens at all. But, you know, people come in and they're bothered enough by a problem, either their breasts are too small or they're too large or too saggy or some other problem, asymmetry. So they come into their plastic surgeon's office, and hopefully they've done a little bit of homework by this point. You just don't want to go into anybody's office. You want to do a little bit of homework, make sure your doctor is board certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. You know, look at his credentials, check out the website a little bit, and then you come in for a consultation. So you'll typically sit across the the table from the doctor, and, uh, you know, and hopefully the doctor will do a little bit of a history. And that means the doctor will ask you about the, you know, what you've been through in your life and what your medical history is and whether you have allergies to anything. And then after all that's done, you'll probably get down to the nitty-gritty and say, well, what's on your wish list? What is it about your breasts you'd like to change? And at that point, women will kind of tell the doctor what it is that bothers them about their breasts. Then you usually have an examination, and you check it out and see what the problem is, and then the, the doctor will give you his opinion on, his or her opinion on the, what can be done and how you can make it better. And I know there are several different kinds of implants, so you go through all the different types of implants. So can you explain that process a little bit? It's a little bit overwhelming. Yes, it is very overwhelming, and, and we, we usually budget a full hour for me to spend with patients when they come in for a, for a breast consultation. Now, there are many, many different types of implants. And implants are, you know, just to state the obvious, they're, they're for ladies who, for whatever reason, want to have a larger breast volume. A lot of times that's 
due to childbirth, and a lot of times it's just due to the fact that they, they don't have as much volume as they'd like to have in their breasts. Or they've lost weight. I know a lot of my friends who've lost weight need to get an implant just to make them rounder. Exactly. Weight loss is a big one, too, and that, and that, that gets tricky. So uh, let's say we do decide that you know, breast augmentation is in order. Um, lots of different types of implants and lots of different types or different ways of getting the implants into the, the space you know, the, uh, where they're going to enhance the breasts. Now, the first consideration should be, do you put them above the muscle or below the muscle? Now, every doctor has their own opinion on whether above or below the muscle is better. In general, we like to go below the muscle because it's better hidden, and it tends to look more natural, more like real breast tissue. Who's a good candidate for above the muscle? Well, above the muscle, if, if there's some sagginess to the breast and the patient doesn't want to or isn't a candidate for a breast lift, then you may want to consider going above the muscle because it's not really good to put a breast implant below the muscle in a breast that has a lot of sagginess. Sometimes you can get what's called a double bubble problem where the breast is a little bit saggy and then the muscle and the implant unit behind it, you see sort of two bumps below the breast. So you kind of want to avoid that. So that's if it's below the muscle? That's if it's below the muscle in a saggy breast. Oh, I see. Okay. So, But if it's above the muscle, you're saying you can get sagging as well? Well, the sagging is either there or it's not there. You know, the, the drooping of the breast is either there or it's not there. And usually that can be determined by um, looking at the woman. And the, the test we, we all look for is where is the nipple relative to the fold of the breast underneath the breast. That's the critical question. And if the nipple starts to get at the fold or below the fold, that's drooping. That's called ptosis or drooping of the breast. And that's when we need to think about, you know, boy, do we need a lift in addition to the implant? Now, doctors totally disagree on, which makes it very confusing because you'll talk to two reputable doctors and they'll have a completely different plan. So, you know, who's right? And maybe there is no right answer, but it's, it's always good as a patient to kind of listen and see what makes the most sense you know, when you hear the plan of the doctor. So if there is drooping in the breast, often we, we need to do a lift. Otherwise, if we just put an implant in a droopy breast, then the nipple might be very low and the implant might be very high, and that doesn't look good. That's why it's so confusing. Now, if you, if you have a breast implant, are you able to do a lift afterwards? Doctors need to be very, very cautious when they do a lift and an implant at the same time because you need to consider the blood supply to the, especially the nipple and to the nipple areola. Because if you're doing too much surgery, let's say you're doing a big lift plus you're putting in an implant, imagine this, you're stretching the skin by putting in an implant and you're shrinking the skin by doing a lift. So you just don't want to do too much of that, otherwise you can get into a problem with not enough blood supply, then you can have a, just a horrible result. You can lose a nipple or, or um, you know, have a, a catastrophic outcome. And that's pretty rare, isn't it? It's very rare, but it does happen. You know, it, it does happen, and especially when aggressive lifts are done at the same time as large implants are put in, then the body may just not be able to handle it. Why do some of these implants rupture? Implants are devices, just like any other devices, and, and they have a certain rupture rate, and the rate is roughly, it's a little bit less, but roughly 1% per device per year. So that means in 10 years, you know, 1% per device per year, so about 20% of people would have a rupture. And rupturing is not the same as getting a hard breast. And why does that happen? 
Now, rupture means that the outer shell of the breast implant breaks for whatever reason. Now, if there's salt water inside the implant, then the woman knows right away because the, the breast is flat and the other one's normal. So they know right away. But if it's a silicone gel breast implant, then it's harder to determine whether there's been a rupture. Scar tissue always covers every breast implant made. There's always scar tissue. Hopefully, it's very mild scar tissue. And if there is a rupture of a silicone implant, often the silicone will just stay within that scar tissue, and people will have no idea that they have a rupture. So do you recommend silicone or saline, or what's the indication for any woman? It's a very, very personal decision on whether to choose silicone or saline. We don't think that there's any relationship between autoimmune diseases and silicone gel implants. The studies just don't bear that out anymore. So that question is kind of put to rest now. But if a silicone gel implant ruptures, it's not good. The silicone can be reactive to the tissues. It can cause a scar to form around the breast implant. Or very, very, very rarely, it's possible that the silicone could get out of the capsule and into you know, vital structures such as the armpit. That's why most doctors would recommend if there is a rupture of the silicone gel implant, most doctors would recommend to replace that implant. Now, the whole the FDA has just approved silicone gel, gel implants for anybody over 22 years of age. Why? Why is that age group? Uh, who knows? The, the FDA has has reasons for choosing things that no one really knows. Even sometimes they go against their advisory committee. A couple times recently, the advisory committee had re- has recommended one thing, and then the FDA, you know, reverses that. So you never know what they're thinking is exactly. But the FDA, we do know, is very, very concerned about silent rupture of silicone gel implants. Now, silent rupture means that there's a rupture of the silicone, but you don't know about it. That's what the FDA is concerned about. So anyone who gets a silicone gel implant now, the FDA is recommending that they get follow-up MRI studies. Now, here's the problem. An MRI study is very expensive. It could be $1,000 and insurance is not going to cover it. So if the patient is going to you know, spend a lot of money for a breast augmentation, and then in three years after the surgery, they're going to have to have an MRI, and every two years after that, that's a lot of money just for looking for an implant rupture that may not have occurred. So do you have to sign something for that? I mean, if you, I thought with the approval you don't have to sign something. Is that not true? I think there's probably more paperwork to sign when you get a breast augmentation than there is when you buy a house. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. Forget it. No, I'm all pro breast implants. Don't don't get me wrong. All right. Explain more the difference between saline and silicone, though. So, what okay. if you go for the the saline? When 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 you when you hand a woman a saline implant and you hand her a silicone implant, every single person is going to say the silicone implant feels better. The silicone implant feels more like real breast tissue. The saline implant feels a little bit firmer. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get a good result with a saline implant. You can get a great result with a saline implant, but it's not quite the same as a silicone gel implant. That's why people are trying so hard, you know, to get their silicone implants put in. It's just a big, there's a big push now, now that the FDA has legalized silicone gel to get silicone gel implants rather than saline implants. Now, the pluses and the minuses. So silicone feels better. Silicone is better for things like asymmetry, when there's a difference in size of the breast, and you have to put a different size implant on each side. 
you get better results with silicone than you do with saline. But there are people who are very frightened still about silicone gel implants. And for those patients, it just wouldn't be right to put a silicone implant in when they're so frightened that they might have a complication from the silicone. So those patients may be better off with saline. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. And silicone does cost more. I think they're between 1800 and $2,000 for a pair of implants. Unbelievable. That's what they cost. And silicone's more expensive than saline. Silicone's much more expensive than saline. Well, we're going to be right back with Dr. Brent Mulliken. I'm so interested to talk to you more about this and get to the bottom of this so all women can have perfect breasts. We'll be right back with Beauty Now. This program is proudly sponsored by Meet the Dreamer, Alisa's Four Cornerstones to Living Your Dreams. The new book by Alisa Kreitman. Create the life you want at meetthedreamer.com. Hi, we're back with Dr. Brent Mulliken. He's been featured on Extreme Makeover, and we were just talking about saline versus silicone implants, lifts, everything else. Welcome back. Well, it's good, good to be back. Thank you. And so we were just talking about silicone versus saline, and you were talking about the pros and cons. Right. So, so we talked about how silicone implants actually do feel more realistic. They feel more like breast tissue than saline implants do. That's why there's a big premium on it. But for patients who are very worried about, gosh, will my silicone gel implant rupture? Will I have health problems? Will they leak? You know, that kind of patient who's always going to be worried about a silicone gel implant, it's better if they don't get it. They're better off with a saline implant. For their own peace of mind. For their own peace of mind. So I remember hearing a couple years back about the teardrops or, um, you know, things that could be actually fitted to your body. Is that still, do people still do that? I think the teardrop shape, when you hold up a teardrop shape implant, it looks wonderful. It has a swoop on the top, and it really, really looks like a natural breast. But what I found is when the teardrop shape goes in the body, it actually doesn't look that different from a conventional breast implant. The reason why you'd want to get your breast fixed in the same place. Exactly. So when you put a little bit of pressure, even when they sit on the desk, on a, on a physiologically shaped implant they start to look like a round implant. Plus, there's a little polarity of the implant. So you have to make the pocket when you're doing the surgery exactly the size of the implant. You can't allow the implant to rotate. Well, that's actually, you brought up a good point. How do you put those implants in and what type of scars do you have? Ah, now my favorite incision to put in breast implants is the below the breast incision for a number of reasons. One of the other very, very popular incisions, and it's not a bad incision. In fact, we do it sometimes is around the areola. And the reason people get that is they think that there won't be any scar below the breast, which of course is true. But there is a scar on the areola. And especially women who are very, very protective of their breast sensation, we know that cutting near the areola will damage more nerves than cutting underneath the breast. So there's probably a higher chance that women won't be able to feel their nipples later on or will feel less of their nipples if they have an around-the-nipple incision. Now that is so interesting. I never knew that. That's yeah. good to hear. Yep, and, and so, so those are the two most common incisions. The armpit incision is still used, and, and some doctors do a beautiful job at it, but the problem is a little bit that it's very hard to get the placement exact of the implants. So that incision tends to have a little bit higher complication rate 
with respect to, you know, one implant being higher or lower than the other. What about the belly button? I've heard about that. Yes, the belly button is big now. Belly button is big. And what that involves is an incision through the belly button, and a tube is inserted, and it's, the tube goes tunnels all the way from the belly button up to the rib cage, jumps over the rib cage, and then makes a space typically below the muscle, and then the implant, the saline implant only, no, no silicone implants, saline implant only is then put in like a little taco and then unrolled, and then it's inflated in the body. And that's for, for patients who absolutely don't want to have a scar around their nipple or below the breast, that may be something to consider. That seems scary to me, but, I mean, it's amazing what doctors can do today. Yeah, it is. That is an amazing approach. We, we don't care for that approach because um, for a number of reasons, but, you know, many doctors do a great job at, at belly button implants, and, and uh, their patients uh, seem to like it. If you're an A and you want to be a D, what do you say? I'm a big believer in measuring, and that means that we take the patient beforehand and, and we say, okay, how wide is your breast? So we measure the breast at how wide it is. And we, d- we try to put an implant that's actually smaller than the width of the breast. Now, you may say, well, that sounds totally obvious. Of course you do that. But many doctors don't believe in measuring. They just believe in putting in a really, really large implant. But the problem with putting a large implant is that the skin will stretch. When you're putting something in and you're stretching it out, the skin is going to stretch and become thin. So women who have had very large breast implants often have many, many redo surgeries because they need lifts, the skin gets thin, they have complications, they see a lot of rippling of their implants, the implants are very visible. All these are problems when we put in too large of an implant. Do um, women that get large implants, are they more prone to getting encapsulated? Probably the rate of encapsulation is similar. However, the rate of redo surgery for women with very large breast implants is without question much higher. Scars tend to be worse. They just tend to have a lot more problems down the road. Now, now we, we think as doctors and we hope as patients that once a breast implant is put in, we'll never need surgery again, but that's actually probably not the case. In fact, the average is probably after 10 or 15 years, for whatever reason, the breast implants will need to be redone. And that's something patients should calculate in. You know, there's not just you get your surgery and you'll never need to think about it again. Probably in 10 or 15 years, you'll need redo surgery. And that's on them, right? That's not on the doctor. Correct. That's the patient needs to pay for that. Right. So what about massaging the breast after surgery? I mean, does that help so you won't get hard? I mean, is that realistic? Well, the most important thing to to avoid um, capsular contracture, which is excessive scar forming around the breast, The most important thing is how the surgery is done. So the surgery shouldn't be done, you know, in a factory where breast implants are just put in one after the other. It's a very personal thing, and we want to make sure there's no bleeding. Now, bleeding in the the area of surgery, we know, will give a higher risk of having a capsular contracture later on. So we definitely don't want to have any bleeding, and we really, really want to control you know, how clean the operative site is afterwards. Also, we know that bacteria, any bacteria that get in, are also very bad, you know, for promoting capsular contracture later on. So how do we avoid bacteria? Obviously, good sterile technique. You know, be very gentle with the tissues. Um, plus, in many operating rooms, you know, that are highly accredited, there are filters in the ceiling that will filter the air. 
or if a doctor is putting in a saline implant, you want to know, is that saline coming directly from the bag into the implant, or is it sitting there in a bowl that the doctor just injects? You know, all these Great little point. things may make a difference in the long run on how many microscopic bacteria get in the wound and then cause trouble with scar formation later on. That's such a good point. You would never think to ask that question. Yes. Never thought of it before. Right. Now, now people will... You know, people the listening will think, well, okay, that's the important question, Tap, but that's really not the important no. question. The important question is, you know, is your doctor really, really reputable? That's the most important thing. And we're seeing that with every field now, uh, and I, can't, I keep stressing this, is please do your research. Please do your research, absolutely. I hate doing redo surgeries, so please do your research. I just interviewed somebody else who was just saying, I mean, in another field, and he said, I wouldn't dream to touch your nose. <laughs> And it's so true. I mean, it makes such great sense because you hear of, I mean, there's great dentists, and, and dentists now are applying to be plastic surgeons, but that's not what they went to school for, so everybody needs to do their research. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very important. It's so tough to know, you know, which doctor to go to, but if you do pick someone who's board certified, you know, in plastic surgery, then you know at least you're getting a board certified plastic surgeon. There are many other steps to take. Great to have referrals. Great to have referrals. If your if your local doctor, you know, if you if they start mentioning the same name and you hear a lot of your friends have gone to that person, they and they have just a, a good reputation in the community. You know, you don't want to jump into anything just because there's a new technique. A lot of times, these new techniques don't work out. Most new techniques don't work out. Exactly, I've heard that before too. That's that's really good information. Yeah. But yet, yet, whenever a new technique comes up, people just line up for it. It's so true. I'd probably be one of those people, but now I'm educated, so that's great. Yes, it just boggles my mind. It's just, you know, when a new technique comes out, it's just, even when you, if you bought a car, you wouldn't do that. If the, if the new, you know, nuclear-powered car came out, you wouldn't run out and buy one because you want to know if they explode first. <laughs> it's just so, true. so simple, but yet people would go out and they hear about a new laser and off they go and they want to be the first to get the new laser without even knowing if it works or not. Well, and also having a qualified doctor. Right. A qualified doctor will not do crazy procedures on his patient, period. So that's the whole judgment that goes in. It's very hard for a patient to educate themselves to the level of a plastic surgeon who went to, you know, to medical school. And well, even a doctor, even if it's not a plastic sur- or a surgeon or a doctor, or any t- I think that's what we all just look up to doctors. And I think everybody has to realize everybody has their specialty. Right. Everyone has their specialty, and they're good doctors, and they're not so good doctors. That's great. That's true. Very true. Before we go, I want to touch on breast lift. Okay. Could you explain to our listeners about a lollipop scar and a anchor scar, all those kinds of things real quick? Sure. There are many different kinds of lifts, from, from weaker lifts that just move the nipple or the areola around a little bit, you know, usually up. Those lifts are done usually around the nipple alone, and they tend to be somewhat weaker. Now, the stronger lifts are a lift like the lollipop, where the incision would go, you know, around the areola, but also down to the bottom of the breast fold. And there are many variants of those. But let's just say the lollipop is a number of the short scar incisions. They call them short scar incisions. And then for the real lifts, most doctors use what's called an anchor, which means an incision around the areola, down to the bottom of the breast, and at the bottom of the breast. Now, if you think about it, what is a lift? What is a breast lift? What you're doing is you have too much skin 
for the amount of breast that you have. And so you want to do a lift to remove the extra skin. Now, when we remove extra skin, we have to sew it up somehow. And if we're doing it just around the areola, there's going to be a lot of gathering, just like if you were sewing clothes and you sewed a big circle to a small circle. There'd be a lot of gathering of the fabric. Well, the same thing goes with the breast. If you're doing a big lift and you're doing it all around the areola, you can sometimes get a lot of gathering. So rather than to have a bad scar around the areola, it's sometimes better to take part of that scar and hide it on the way down to the bottom of the breast fold. And that would be more like a lollipop. Or if you're really taking a lot of skin away because the, there's way too much skin for the amount of breast tissue there is, then an anchor incision with an incision at the bottom of the breast, you know, at the fold, that a lot of times is better for the patient. But your doctor, any doctor doing breast lifts should be able to go through all the options with you and kind of show you pictures and, and give you the pluses and the minuses of each technique. And is that the same as a reduction, the same scar? The reduction scar is the same as we use for a lift. It's just when you do a reduction, you reduce the volume, you know, the size of the breast, in addition to doing the lift. So you're taking out more skin when you're doing a reduction than a lift? Not necessarily. You're really? not, you, you, it's just you're taking out both volume and extra skin. In the case of the lift, you're just taking off the extra skin and repositioning the nipple and making the breast shape pretty again. So bottom line, really everybody's different, right? I mean, everybody needs a consultation to see what's right for them. Everyone is different. And it's not a bad idea to pick, let's say, your three or four favorite you know, picks once you've done your research and talk to them all and see what they say and see which of the plans makes sense. Surgery should make sense, and the doctor should be able to explain it to the patient and tell them why this option would be better than another option. And last but not least, the scars. When do they go away? Scars are different in every patient. Some patients heal beautifully, and you can barely see the scars. Some patients heal terribly, and the scars are just horrible. Now, the good news is that scars tend to fade. They'll usually fade slowly, and there are many things your doctor can do with you to help those fade and to help them look their very best. But a lot of it is luck of the draw in genes and genetics. That, that determine how a scar will heal, and, of course, the technique of the doctor. And what can you do to help your scars heal? There are many things you can do to help the scars heal better. You know, doctors can keep a close eye on their patients and see them often in follow-up, and they can do steroid injections if, they're, if it looks like the scar is starting to, to widen. They can put various creams, you know, antioxidant creams or silicone-based creams, there's silicone sheeting that can be used, which is a little silicone, almost like a Band-Aid that goes over the incision. And all these things have been proven to, to um, you know, reduce the scarring. But if you think about it, if, you're, if you want a good scar, you better do the surgery well. And you better not take a, put a lot of tension on the closure. So let's say you did a really big breast augmentation, and at the same time, you did a really big lift. Well, those scars are going to stretch. No matter how you slice it, those scars are going to stretch and probably not be good scars. So you really want a, you know, a good doctor thinking about all these problems that go into you know, not just, oh, I want beautiful, huge, perky breasts. Well, you know, a lot of people... Every woman does. Everyone does, but many people do. 
but that's not always the best way to get a good result for everybody. Before we go, oldest patient. The oldest patient. I had a lady who was deep in her 70s who had a breast augmentation and breast lift. and you know All her kids were gone, and they were all out of the house, and, and she had just been work, 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 work all her life, and finally she decided to you know, fix her breasts up. So I she love was it. She was in her 70s, and she was, she was very happy. Go, girl. I Go love girl. it. That's what I'm all about. Thank you so much, Dr. Brent Mulliken, for being with us today. For our listeners that want to get a hold of Dr. Brent Mulliken, you can go to personallifemedia.com. Any questions, T-E-R-I at personallifemedia.com. We're going to link our website to him so you can find him in Beverly Hills or Santa Barbara. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.